Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. In our next full-length episode, which will come out in a couple of weeks, the Curmudgeon Rock Report will take on all the music critics and hipsters who have heaped hate on the superstar British band Muse for almost 20 years with a special episode in defense of Muse. Part of defending this band, however, is to understand their influences and inspirations. The bands and artists whose work Muse have assimilated into creating their their own unique sound that they have. So, what's the musical formula that gave birth to one of the biggest and best rock bands of the 21st century? In our curmudgeonly opinions, it is as follows. Take the unapologetically campy bombast and classical music affectations of Queen. Take the dystopian sci-fi prog rock narrative song cycles and intense musicianship of Rush. Take the stadium-filling hubris, in a good way, of course, of U2. Take the earnest, yearning, guitar-heavy alternative rock of early Radiohead. Put it all together, and you get Muse, a lean, mean, unbeatable stadium rock machine. So... For this specially extended vault segment of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we'll dig into the vault and pull out four key albums by each of those previously mentioned bands. Albums that were undoubtedly formative influences on the young members of Muse when they were a teenage band from Tainmouth, Devon, England, hustling to get ahead. Queen's undisputed all-time classic, A Night at the Opera, Russia's prog rock opus of Farewell to Kings, U2's criminally underrated art rock adventure Zuropa, and Radiohead's influential and generation-defining masterpiece The Benz will all get the curmudgeonly analytical treatment explaining why these albums are great and why they still matter. In fact, we'll go the extra mile and, as an act of contrast, analyze a fifth classic album by a band that was Muse's contemporary, rising out of the post-Britpop scene in the late 1990s, shot right out of the gate to international fame, and while still maintaining commercial success and pop hits throughout the years, have kind of sold out, and unlike Muse, have failed to carry the flame for righteous, original, and meaningful stadium rock. That, of course, is Coldplay, and their only great album, A Rush of Blood to the Head. So, pull up your feet, 
Sit back and enjoy a trip through the rock and roll time machine as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you Selections from the Vault, The Roots of Muse. When people think of the band Queen, they tend to think of the flamboyant superhero of a frontman with the multi-octave vocal range and the long list of songs that serve as enduring, timelessly classic stadium rock anthems. While all of that is rightfully so, what gets lost when people take Queen for granted is how innovative and ahead of their time they were in so many ways. While hard rock and heavy metal in the mid-1970s tended to be the domain of chest-beating, hairy, macho, often misogynistic dude bros among fans and musicians alike, Queen's brand of heavy rock, while not lacking at all in muscular power and sheer loudness, had a witty, clever nod and wink to it with singer Freddie Mercury's subtle homoeroticism and the band's overall overt tongue-in-cheek attitude undermining the pomposity of the bludgeoning guitar riffs, the indulgent guitar solos, and the extravagant fairy tale lyrics. Queen were ridiculous. They knew they were ridiculous, and they knew that you knew they were ridiculous. It was an achievement in meta-awareness that no band except for maybe Sparks had at at that time. In guitarist Brian May, they had an utterly unique virtuoso player who not only had a distinctive tone and sound, but also broke ground with his technique of overdubbing layers of exquisitely sounding guitars, leading to what sounded like a futurist sci-fi guitar orchestra. Queen were sorely underrated in the fact that, along with Todd Rundgren and David Bowie, they were one of the three major 1970s rock acts who took the restlessly eclectic musical magpie approach that the Beatles pioneered in the previous decade and not only updated it for a new decade and a new generation, but they did it in such a way and with such rich sonic clarity that their musical genre explorations sound just as invigorating and exciting now as they did back then. Heavy metal, progressive rock, Blues rock, jazz, folk, western swing, classical, opera, pop balladeering, old-timey vaudeville pop, funk, soul, gospel, electronic dance music. Nothing was off-limits for Queen in a decade when bands and artists were, fairly or not, identified by whatever genre they were seen to reside in. In Queen's iconic discography, No album better exemplified their ambition, their stylistic reach, and their criminally underrated songwriting powers than the most iconic album in their discography, The Glorious A Night at the Opera. By 1975, Queen had already broken through with commercial success with the previous year's brilliant album, Sheer Heart Attack, 
covered extensively by the curmudgeon rock report in last year's episode reviewing the extremely underrated year of 1974. Yes, that would be episode 8 of the curmudgeon rock report if you're so inclined, all of you out there, to dig all the way back in whatever platform you use to listen to this show. Now, that album, Sheer Heart Attack, produced a huge hit single on both sides of the Atlantic with Killer Queen hitting the top 10 of the UK singles chart and the top 20 of the US pop chart. An irresistible romp of vaudeville rock filled with lyrical sexual double entendre about a high-priced prostitute. That song was a perfect encapsulation of Queen's cheeky humor and penchant for ridiculously catchy hooks. The album itself, Sheer Heart Attack as a whole, was a smorgasbord of styles, but ultimately it established Queen as one of the best hard rock, almost metal bands on the planet. Of course, being just one of many great rock bands was never Queen's main goal. Remember, this was an era before the time of punk rock and underground slash indie integrity. If you didn't want to be as big and as popular as possible, then you had no business being in the business. This was a band that counted the Beatles as their primary influence and inspiration and rated Led Zeppelin's status as the biggest band in the world as their main goal. It was with this hubris and brash confidence that Queen entered the studio to record what would become their career-defining album and a landmark in heavy rock music. With vocal harmonies stacked on top of vocal harmonies and guitars overdubbed to the absolute limit that the multi-track recording of the time would allow, the words too much and excess never existed in Queen's musical vocabulary, and nor should it have, especially when the result is titanic rock music of this innovative quality and scale. With the beginning track, Death on Two Legs, a vitriolic fuck-off to their former manager who allegedly skimmed money from them, one could already detect a more vicious, nastier edge to Queen's brand of proto-glam metal. Brian May always attested to a love of 1920s Dixieland jazz music and combined with Freddie Mercury's penchant and facility for campy vaudeville music, best shown in the rollicking Mercury-penned tracks Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon in Seaside Rendezvous, A Night at the Opera manages to make an audacious collision between these styles and these styles and the punishingly heavy hard rock Queen was known for. In spite of the rock bombast that Queen specialized in, May's reputation as a visionary guitar hero is probably best earned in good company. The third of the 1920s jazzy vaudeville trilogy of songs on the album where May utilizes an array of small amplifiers to make his guitar emulate the sound of trumpets and trombones. Reading a lot of what artists and musicians have to say, you realize that One of the hardest tricks to do in music making and overall songwriting is making the mundane sound majestic. And that's exactly what the band does so brilliantly with drummer Roger Taylor's ode to his car. Um, I'm in love with my car. (laughs) While in almost any other band's hands, this would be corny and goofy as all hell. 
But in the skilled hands of a band like Queen, the colossal arena rock of I'm in love with my car makes automotive salvation sound outright heroic. Bassist Roger Taylor, who would go on to pen some of the band's best songs and biggest hits, makes his songwriting presence felt with the melodic sunshine pop of You're My Best Friend, the album's second massive pop hit, more on the album's first colossal hit later, and a track so brimming with vocally harmonized and well-structured beauty that it must have made Brian Wilson blush. Sweet Lady is a raunchy slice of odd time-signatured heavy metal, and the epic The Prophet song, with its punishing guitars, mystical lyrics, multi-section structure, and Mercury's a cappella middle section with seemingly 100 multi-tracked vocals, could very well be the moment where progressive metal was born. The lush Mercury ballad Love of My Life and the aforementioned Good Company really don't prepare the listener for the emotional roller coaster experience that is listening to Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time. If you need me to explain this song to you, then it's clear that you've been living under a rock called No Music for most of your life. Needless to say, it's one of the most complex, ambitious, yet endlessly accessible and affecting pieces of progressive pop slash hard rock ballads ever recorded, right up there with any of the Beatles or the Beach Boys' most famous and ambitious works. And it is a song that, with its worldwide chart success, elevated Queen to the top of the rock mountain, a place where they would stay until Freddie Mercury's death in 1991. I've used the word audacious a few times. I've also used the word visionary and innovative, and now you can include bold in this album's description. With punk rock around the corner and with progressive rock the likes of Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer on the decline, it took major guts and not a small amount of balls for Queen to put this kind of rock album out in the marketplace. Yet they did. And more than setting a benchmark for the band, it set a benchmark for rock music as a whole. For a brief time, the ensuing punk rock revolution made such musical indulgence rather unhip and uncool. But for future generations of bands and artists, Queen's A Night at the Opera made it not only commercially and artistically okay to let your musical freak flag fly, it made it okay to fly that flag as preposterously proud as possible. For contemporary bands like Muse, that was a pivotal lesson learned. When drummer Neil Peart died of brain cancer in early 2020, it marked the official end of the legendary power trio and progressive rock band Rush a group at once renowned for having one of the world's biggest cult followings for a rock band and massively respected for their technical and virtuosic musical chops. But more importantly, what made Rush stand out as one of the greatest, and arguably the greatest, prog rock bands of all time was their thoroughly unique and undeniably innovative approach to conceptual music and concept albums with science fiction, fantasy, and deeply philosophical themes. 
They also infuse their brand of prog rock with an overwhelmingly hard rock sound bordering on heavy metal. While bands like Yes, Early Genesis, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and even King Crimson aspired primarily to classical music with their song structures, elaborate suites, and occasionally overbearing affectations, Rush aspired to be in the heavy rock lineage of The Who, Cream, and Led Zeppelin. More interestingly, though, they were not a band of the late 1960s to early 1970s like the aforementioned prog rock bands. Their peak period of creatively all-time classic albums was the mid to late 1970s and early 1980s, a time when the anti-indulgence ethos of punk, post-punk, and new wave was to keep rock music brief, short, and economical. When seen in that light and context, it's astonishing that Rush became a huge band during this time by going as far against the grain as possible. And it was in that halcyon year of punk, 1977, that Rush released A Farewell to Kings, just one of a string of brilliant albums in their golden era that would also end up being one of the all-time landmark albums in progressive rock, arguably Rush's best album. After three generally uneven albums from 1974 to 75, albeit with some truly awe-inspiring and inspired moments and songs spread throughout, they finally broke through commercially in 1976 with the album 2112, whose entire first side is a sci-fi story in song, set in a dystopian future where evil government forces suppress individuality and creativity in society via the deployment of a cabal of evil priests. <laughs> Echoes of which are very much prevalent in the dystopian sci-fi narratives of people rising to fight evil government forces that populate much of the work of a certain band called Muse. Anyway, despite the 2112 Suite's disturbing narrative similarity to the sci-fi novella Anthem, written by right-wing author and philosopher Ayn Rand, whose views were alleged to be forebears of Nazism, the album struck a worldwide chord with hard rock and metal fans looking for something deeper and a little more intellectually stimulating than Kiss or Ted Nugent. Likewise, prog rock fans weary of the fey and pretentious pump of Yes, Genesis, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer found a lot to latch onto with Rush's earnest, straightforward, muscularly rocking style of progressive rock. What followed in 77, A Farewell to Kings, was at once an expansion of Rush's conceptual ambitions and a refinement of their evolving songwriting prowess. Songs like Xanadu and Cygnus X1 take the sci-fi fantasy narratives to overdrive. The former, an expressionistic interpretation of Samuel Coleridge's mystical poem Kubla Khan, the latter a story about a spaceship stuck in a black hole. <laughs> but really, it's the music that matters. While both Xanadu and Cygnus X1 are 10-minute-plus sweet pieces that are spellbindingly complex, 
They also have rich textures, earworm guitar riffs, and they're melodically rich, especially Xanadu. As stated before, their conventional pop songwriting was improving by leaps and bounds, best exemplified by the soaring, anthemic hit single, Closer to the Heart, easily one of Rush's 10 best ever songs. A yearning plea for the notion of art, science, and politics having to come from a place of benevolence before commerce. It packs quite a bit of philosophical-slash-ethical punch in just under three minutes. Rush's hot streak would continue and evolve into a more streamlined, slightly synthesizer-heavy form by the early 1990s. Sorry, the early 1980s, haha. But... A Farewell to Kings represents a maturity and a leap forward in musical sophistication that would make the album one of the key handful of records that form the bedrock of Rush's legacy. It would take a while before their influence would really truly be felt, but in the coming years, luminary bands such as Tool, The Mars Volta, Coheed and Cambria, Mastodon, and yes, Muse would go on to owe a huge debt to the intellectual, visionary, heavy metal, progressive rock fusion that Rush perfected. We wanted to give a quick shout out to an amazing music podcast you should definitely check out right after you listen to this episode. The Ringer's Rob Harvilla hosts 60 songs that defined the 90s. That's an audacious, ambitious title, and 75 songs in, the talented and often hilarious Harvilla is painting a rich, detailed, compelling take on that incredible decade. Wait, 75 songs? Yes, 75. Harvilla is 15 songs into the show's second season. Turns out there are 60 more songs that define the 90s. It's a clever concept but it's one that Harvilla is executing beautifully. And he often makes the journey interactive, asking listeners to choose the song he'll cover in the next episode from a list he offers. And sometimes a write-in candidate wins. Such was the case when Harvilla covered The Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. So we strongly recommend 60 songs that define the 90s and its latest episode, which discusses the Cranberries' Zombie. Muse put out a live album back in 2013 featuring a show they performed at Olympic Stadium in Rome. The band's popularity was arguably at its peak, and that peak was high. How high? They drew a sellout audience of roughly 60,000 people. Sweet. 20 years before Muse did big things in big places bigly when they were a big, big band, U2 did that same big, big thing. U2 also filled the stadium in Rome. They rolled into town on June 7, 1993 as part of the European leg of its astonishing feat of stage art, the Zoo TV Tour. For more than two years, U2 was a band on the run, supporting their 1991 masterpiece Octung Baby. The North American portion of the tour came to a close with a November 5th show in Mexico City. The band now faced a six-month hiatus before their first show in Europe, scheduled for May 9th, in Rotterdam, Netherlands, would arrive. But the band had so much energy, so much momentum, and so much crazy creativity that Bono and The Edge decided to keep on running and record 1993's underrated Zuropa. 
This engrossing, surprisingly electronic album was originally supposed to be an EP, but grew into a full-blown LP. The crazy creativity could not contain itself to the six-month gap, however. That meant the band would need to complete Zeropa between shows early on in the tour, flying to Dublin to continue recording and mixing. Now, that sounds nuts, and probably was for everyone involved, but the urgency reflects itself on the album they eventually released. Zuropa resulted from a collection of jams and snippets from the Octung Baby cutting floor, sound checks from the tour, and jamming literally conducted in the studio by co-producer Brian Eno that were then converted into the 10 songs we hear on Zuropa. The record is a standout in the U2 catalog for two reasons. Here's the first reason. It de-emphasizes the Edge's soaring, soul-shaking riffs and solos and rides a wave of Eno's beloved synthesizers and tape loops and sound effects and samples. The atmospherics allow Bono's melodies to stand out even more than usual and for his falsetto vocals to pop especially, whether in the lead as on the relentlessly groovy Lemon or in the background as on the Edge's industrial thumper Numb or on the Johnny Cash-crooned ironic country ballad, The Wanderer. Yes, Johnny Cash sang a U2 song. Now, here's the second reason Zuropa stands out. It features a discernible, focused, consistent theme. Maybe the only time U2 ever accomplished that. This is an album about uncertainty. During an era when technology was coming on fast and cultural inertia was becoming the norm. Uncertainty can manifest itself as newfound freedom, as it does on opener and title track Zuropa, which opens with an ethereal soundscape and then builds amid slinky guitar work from the edge, really the only instance of that on Zuropa. Uncertainty can also result from forced freedom. See the clanging, banging, daddy's gonna pay for your crashed car, in which the dad effectively gives the daughter the boot. Or it can be a case of rejecting the past and going it alone, whatever that may bring. This is where we find Bono, the lyricist, on the first time, when which the prodigal son refuses to come home, and on The Wanderer, my personal favorite track on Zuropa, which is an ecclesiastic search for meaning in a meaningless and perhaps apocalyptic world. Elsewhere, there is the longing and heartaching of the sensual far away, so close, a perfect song title for this record, actually. There's the lonely detachment demonstrated in Babyface and Lemon, which explicitly address control afforded to us by technology. And for you, too, uh, that is not really a good thing, especially the protagonist on Babyface, who spends his time uh, shaping and molding an electronic uh, girlfriend. Ultimately, Zuropa is a diverse, moody album that grows more compelling as it winds through its 51 minutes. The album ends with the jarring, ominous sound of a power plant-style alarm. This is an ode to urgency that one could argue influenced the next two generations of British rock bands. That, of course, includes Muse, who at their best are as urgent as it gets. For the next episode, yours truly curmudgeons will climb overground and tackle one of the biggest bands in all of mainstream rock, definitively one of the five biggest post-1990s bands in the world. I'm talking about the British band Muse. Their audacious blend of dystopian sci-fi prog rock 
glam rock, heavy metal, edgy alternative rock, and electronic pop has captivated fans around the globe for a little over 20 years now, lifting them to the status of arena filling and, in the UK and Europe, stadium filling rock icons. Yet, music critics and media throughout the years have positively hated them, even to the point of vilifying them. The pretentious indie hipster section of rock fandom has followed suit, making Muse a rather unhip band to like. Well, yours truly curmudgeons think that's unfair, and we plan to set the record straight regarding a band that, at their best, which they usually are, are a boldly original, innovative, and heavy-as-fuck badass rock band. Join us for the next episode as the curmudgeon rock report goes in defense of Muse. In the 1995 installment of the curmudgeon rock report's fourth golden age of rock series, yes, go check it out if you haven't, Chris and I went pretty deep into describing the greatness and importance of The Bends, one of Radiohead's career-defining classic albums, and the one that set them up for the immortal, timeless masterpiece that is 1997's OK Computer. When discussion turns to the question of which is Radiohead's best album, music geeks and Radiohead fans are usually torn between OK Computer and 2000's Kid A. While that's a fair discussion, I personally go with OK Computer, a more nuanced argument can be made that the band's most influential album is The Bends. Seriously, one can argue that an enormous swath of post-Britpop bands that emerged in the late 1990s, early noughties, owe their hearts and souls more to the musical innovation and singular musical style of the Benz than to any other Radiohead album. Travis, Coldplay, Keen, Muse, Snow Patrol, can you imagine the collective sounds and styles of any of these bands without the unique sound that Radiohead pioneered and perfected with the Benz? Strip the guitars and electro electronic textures away from the opening track, Planet Telex, and leave just the piano and drums, and you have the template for just about any song by Keen. While the jangly, chiming guitar rock of 1980s bands like the Smiths and R.E.M. was an inspiration for the lush high and dry, Travis flat out shoplifted and co-opted that sound for the rest of their freaking careers. The epic, soaring, classic ballad, Fake Plastic Trees, essentially gave birth to Coldplay, and was Coldplay's standard default setting until they became a pure pop group uh, several years later. Take out the aggressive guitar bridge of Nice Dream, and that, along with Bulletproof, I Wish I Was, are Snow Patrol in a nutshell. <laughs> as far as Muse is concerned, hey, I love Muse, but every time singer-guitarist Matt Bellamy opens his mouth, he kind of does sound like Tom York, whether he's always intended to or not, and at this point, I'd say not. 
Also, listen to Just and Bones from the Benz album. And tell me that isn't basically Muse every time they rock out. Listen to Street Spirit fade out and tell me that isn't the sound of most of Muse's ballads. Providing an exception for Muse in my comparisons here, a bunch of third-rate crappy imitation bands does not reduce the greatness of the bands they ripped off. Led Zeppelin inspired a slew of shitty macho cock rock bands in the 1970s. That doesn't minimize what Zeppelin did. Nirvana directly inspired a decade's worth of awful, phony grunge bands. Hell, we even devoted an entire episode to that, episode 14 of the Curmudgeon Rock Report to be exact. But that in no way takes away from the irrefutable fact that Nirvana are one of the 10 greatest American bands of all time. The same thing goes for Radiohead here and their impact with the Benz. But hey, at least Muse were able to take that Radiohead template and add a little pomp from Queen, a little sci-fi narrative spice from Rush, and a little conceptual stadium show audacity from U2, right? We end this bonus vault episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report by priming the pump for our defense of Muse. Let's talk about a great album from a contemporary of Muse's whose magnificence was once on par with the latter, but whose flame of glory extinguished long ago, Coldplay. Before Coldplay started performing tacky Super Bowl halftime shows and collaborating with K-pop wonderkins BTS, they were legitimately special. As a quick aside here, uh, BTS's cover of Fix You is actually better than Coldplay's original. Uh, I implore you to go find that on the web. Anyway, back to Coldplay. They exploded into the mainstream in 2000 on the strength of the all-time great single Yellow from the album Parachutes. The song seems saccharine and overwrought at first until you sing that hook out loud and feel those lyrics. Then it's gorgeous. Other songs from Parachutes also found their way into listeners' hearts. I'm fond of Sparks and Trouble myself. Band leader Chris Martin was one hell of a balladeer. But historically, there have been other great balladeers who proved to be a flash in the pan. It was reasonable to expect Coldplay then to be a uh, one-and-done, as Arturo and I like to say. But then Martin and Mates not only maintained relevance and stardom, They exceeded those benchmarks by several miles with 2002's A Rush of Blood to the Head. It is a stunning album that has withstood the test of time much, much better than its predecessor. And that is the album we're recommending and discussing here. A Rush of Blood to the Head is a near classic, one I still listen to on occasion in 2022. Martin proves to be a gifted songwriter with a depth of feeling and a surprising depth of thought. The album is romantic and earnest, yes, but it has a propulsion in its production that makes these songs soar to the stadium rafters that this band would soon inspire and reach in large-scale concerts. There also is a strong variety of tempos, moods, and tones that will draw listeners closer as the songs segue from one to the next and to the next. And Martin proves that he was no phony baloney on Yellow. There are at least four songs in A Rush of Blood to the Head, that also demand active sing-alongs and instant connections. Chief among these is In My Place, which features an outro that rouses and excites and proves anthemic. Martin sings about letting it out, 
Come on and let it out. And we, we do. That song was Coldplay's validation and statement of intent to be one of those big, big bands like U2 and Muse who were big, 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 big for the long haul. But it is the next song on the album after In My Place that makes you realize that you may be listening to something spectacularly special. God Put a Smile Upon Your Face kicks off with a hypnotic little acoustic riff structured in a way unusual for Coldplay up to that point. Is Martin stuck in a phone booth with Eros yearning to be set free? Nope. He's in that phone booth spiritually. And Martin opens with the line, Where do we go? Nobody knows. This first stanza ends with, God put a smile upon my face, not your face. That comes later. First, he prays for his own face. It is a powerful way to launch into the rest of this song, which revs up with guitar reverb and mass overdubs. The album bends and folds like this throughout. No two consecutive songs are samey. The band even offers up a countryish ditty called Green Eyes. Its joy is palpable as desperation that is found elsewhere on the record are ones you've probably heard a few hundred times. Clocks and The Scientist. Both are beautiful in divergent ways. The former rollicks, while the latter slowly oozes its way into our hearts. Personally, the fact that I find a rush of blood to the head to be so damn good kind of pisses me off. Coldplay followed this uh, album with 2005's X and Y, and on even attempt to ascend to the same heights that when it misses, boy is that painful. Coldplay then hooked up with that experimentalist for hire, Brian Eno, for its next several albums. The first of these, Viva La Vida, or Death and All His Friends, has some exciting moments and is a solid effort. The rest, downhill, and then downhill some more, and then downhill even more. The band continued to lean on what by now had become a formula. Maybe they did that to keep Coldplay's increasingly corporate spot. But they did, and while Eno lended some cuteness, the results continued to disappoint. Oh well, but that does not diminish a rush of blood to the head at all. That is something I will always defend, which now preps us for you to enjoy our Defense of Muse in two weeks. Have any thoughts about our journeys into the past in this episode? Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And be sure to join our curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonly. Lots of good stuff up there. Follow us on Twitter at, at curmudgeonpod. And keep an eye out for a Spotify playlist. Uh, this is a good way to uh, do an end around on all this copyright nonsense. So we will uh, put out uh, all five of the records that we talked about on the special bonus episode. Uh, we'll put that into a Spotify playlist for you. Keep on rocking in the not-so-free world, everyone. Take care.